The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com events where you can get your tickets. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Today's podcast was recorded as part of the Dublin Podcast Festival in front of a live audience at the Workman's Club in Dublin. Pat Leahy and I were joined by Sam McBride, who's the political editor of the Belfast Newsletter, and he's also the author of the best-selling book, Burned, the inside story of the Cash for Ash scandal and Northern Ireland's secretive new elite. As the title indicates, the book explores the murky goings-on that led to a scheme set up to increase the use of renewable fuels by businesses in Northern Ireland, becoming a licence to print money for participants at a cost of many hundreds of millions of pounds to Northern Ireland. Sam explores how the scandal originally came to pass, why it took so long for the crisis to be addressed, and what the whole shameful episode tells us about how politics really works in Stormont, where a secretive group of politicians and special advisers and civil servants operate largely free from scrutiny due to the way that institutions are structured under the Good Friday Agreement. We started off with me asking Sam to explain who he is and who he works for. Let's go back a little bit, first of all, just to understand who you are. And given that there isn't one Belfast newsletter reader in the, in the room... Shame on you all. ...what the Belfast newsletter is. Well, through, through the wonders of the internet, even down in Dublin, you're able to read the newsletter online, so you can go home and spend hours um, at newsletter.co.uk, and um, uh, yes, um, you'll, you'll have a very good night's sleep. Um, the, the newsletter is, is actually more interesting than you might think. It is the oldest continuously published English-language daily newspaper in the world, um, it was founded in 1737, I think. Gosh, my editor, if he hears this and I've got that wrong, will be very cross. Um, and it was founded by an ancestor of the um, famous United Irishman, Henry Joy McCracken, who was hanged in Belfast for insurrection against the British government. But these days, it's moved a very long way from, um, from where some of those people were at that point. It's a very unionist paper. It's a very rural paper. Um, and really, um, within Northern Ireland, there are three daily newspapers. There's the Newsletter, which is very unionist and very rural. There's the Irish News, which is sort of all across Northern Ireland and very nationalist. There's the Belfast Telegraph, which is much more concentrated around Belfast as a city and used to be an evening newspaper and would be sort of moderately uh, unionist. So that's the rough political landscape in which I uh, operate. 
And you're the political editor. I'm the political editor, I should say. So the main subject for you is the DUP because they are the largest unionist party and probably, it's fair to say, the majority of your readers vote for the DUP. Yes, that's right. Both of those things are right. And um, I I find the DUP one of the most interesting topics to write about. They are a fascinating party. Lots of people just hate the DUP and think that they are dinosaurs or they're homophobes or whatever. And there is an element of truth to that in some individual cases. Of course there is. Um, But they're a very, very interesting, complex beast. Beneath the bonnet of the DUP, there's a lot more pragmatism. There's a lot more um, realpolitik going on than you might see um, with what Arlene Foster says publicly or what Nigel Dodd says they don't like you to see what's going on inside and so therefore it makes it doubly interesting when you're able to get people to talk it's a bit like Sinn Féin um, and so therefore this united front often masks a lot of debate a lot of division and as this book shows a lot of backstabbing within the party where people are scrambling over each other trying to position themselves and often money is not too far away from things. Um, I'd like to come back to that DUP Sinn Féin duality because there are some interesting some interesting things in that but one of the things that I found reading, the, I found reading the book, um, which I didn't expect at all, was I'm reading these descriptions of these individuals in their own lives and their worlds and their working worlds, and they seemed, and this may seem naive, incredibly foreign to me. You know, there, um, there are so many of them. These are um, elected politicians, special advisors who play a huge role in in this story, and also senior civil servants as well. And there'll be just little tossaway comments like things like. Such and such and such and such and such hotel were working closely together and they had a good working relationship because they liked to read scripture together. And I'm going, that just seems so strange. You know, it seems like a, a missive from another time or another place. It, well, that's just part of it. It's it's a unique political landscape. I mean, you, you, will, you will know about the late Ian Paisley. This was somebody who fused politics and religion. He preached politics from the pulpit of the Martyrs Memorial Free Presbyterian Church. He would um, do the reverse when he was speaking from the platform of the DUP party conference where he would quote scripture. Um, And so therefore they were so intermingled that for lots of DUP members, um, they approach this in a theological sense. They they see politics as as an extension of their life as, um, as evangelical and quite fundamentalist Christians. And so therefore there is this level of, um, if you like, purity, as they see it, um, on top of what would otherwise be the grubby world of politics. And the way the book starts is Jonathan Bell, the DUP minister who's in charge of this cash for ash scheme as it ran out of control, doing a confessional interview, saying, God told me to come and do this. He's on his knees in Broadcasting House, BBC Studios in Belfast, being prayed over by two elderly associates. I mean, even in Northern Ireland's um, political landscape where this is much more common, this sort of religious language and um, elements of um, religiosity, this really stood out. And some people, even some people who were Christians, didn't like that. They thought that that was... Um, hypocritical. It was trying to give a veneer of respectability to what he was doing when actually this was pure politics. Did you think that Damascene conversion was genuine or was it driven by the fact that this stuff was going to come out anyway and there was political consequences or there would be political consequences for that? I can answer that question partly because about six months before he did that, I had made a freedom of information request to his department while he was still the minister, asking for details about how the scheme was closed. He blocked it. So he had the chance to tell this. That wasn't the only chance. He had a chance at any point, obviously, to come forward and tell the truth. It was very clear in the days before this that 
People within the DUP were moving against him. He was going to be the sacrificial lamb. By this stage, Arlene Foster had set up the scheme. She was the minister at that point. She was relatively lowly in, in the DUP pecking order at that point. By this stage, she's the first minister. She can't be allowed to be toppled. Um, so somebody's going to have to be the person who, who pays the price for this. And Jonathan Bell was the most likely candidate. Um, he was out of favour. He'd fallen out with her. And so I think he, he, was, in a, he was in a situation where he believed that that, that that was what was going to happen. And whether there was an element of genuine remorse on his part that's difficult for me to say but certainly he, he felt vulnerable but the the position or the posture of the penitent sinner would be a familiar one in this culture which we're describing there's one other thing about it and maybe it seems strange to me but on the other hand perhaps it seems normal is that the dup has the best sex scandals on the island of ireland i'm not sure what to say to that <laughs> um i uh, certainly i mean Scandals in the DUP, yes, yes, there have been sex scandals, but actually I would say that financial scandals are more significant in the DUP. Now, let's talk about the sex scandals, because... <laughs> but but it, 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 seems, it seems to me that when you talk about, like, that, you know, the religious front for, uh, you know, to, to, uh, to assist in the political act of contrition and hopefully absolution, I mean, the parallels that we see to that are, you know, not in, uh, uh, you know, the other polity on this island or the neighbouring one. But how many times have we seen it in in the US where, you know, religion plays a much more overt role in their politics as well? And when, you know, uh, when politicians are caught up in scandal, they reach for religion and for the, the language and metier of religion to 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 help them with political absolution. Yeah, and one one story about a sex scandal in the DUP. Um, Only David, one. I mean, <clears throat> David David Simpson was the DUP MP for Upper Ban. He defeated David Trimble. Um, that was his claim to fame. He put him out of Parliament in two thousand and five. It was a massive moment in Northern Ireland politics. Pushed Trimble out of politics um, and um, was really significant in the rise of the DUP to the top of unionism. Um, he was somebody who, as an MP. When same-sex marriage was being discussed in Westminster, he stood up, he made a speech against it, and that's entirely, um, un that's entirely um, unsurprising because that was the DUP policy. But he ended his speech with the line that, um, and I, I'm, I'm going to now paraphrase this, but it was along the lines of, um, when, when God created man and woman, he created Adam and Steve, not, uh, uh, no, uh, Adam and, and he actually screwed up the line that he was saying. The Hansard writers in Parliament corrected it for him because they got the gist of what he was trying to say. He has recently decided that he's not standing for Parliament again because it's turned out that while he was doing that, while he was telling Parliament that, he was having an affair with his secretary, who was also a DUP councillor. So, yes, it's particularly embarrassing for the DUP when these things happen. Any party doesn't like that sort of thing coming out. But when you've overlaid it with this sense of righteousness, I think that is particularly undermining for them. Which we'll is, a, of course, what makes it so entertaining. For well, the rest indeed, of us. well, indeed, and we're having a bit of fun with this, and it, it is. I, I do find it quite quite amusing in many ways. But I do also, you know, I I seek to understand. You know, there's a lot of guff talked about how we should all find a way to live together in this island, and different people have different political, you know, ideas for for how that should be. But it does seem to me that there is a complete lack of understanding in Dublin and Point South including Tipperary, um, of, of, of the culture and the political history and the reality of what it means actually to be an Irish unionist in Northern Ireland. And in many ways, that's entirely logical. Um, we are all, we're all selfish people. We're all interested in what matters to us. And frankly, 
whatever anybody thinks about partition, it's a reality. And for over almost 100 years, we have grown apart. We have become very different um, places. Uh, and so while people in Northern Ireland sometimes get annoyed that people, particularly in England, don't know enough about Northern Ireland politics, I always turn it around a little bit and say, Northern Ireland is a very small place within a very large union of the, of the, of the UK. Northern Ireland is about the size of Essex. How many people in Northern Ireland know who the, who the mayor of Essex is, know about the council system, know how it's governed? They don't because it doesn't matter to them. So why should somebody in Essex care about us? And I think there, there is an element of selfishness. Now, obviously, you're closer to us. Yeah, we don't, have, more to, we don't have that excuse. You don't, don't to a certain extent, yeah. but, but you don't. Um, the, the, uh, the, uh, the taxation system here is different. Our scandals don't impact you. They don't hit you in the pocket. Um, these are not the people that are deciding in your laws. And so, therefore, there's an element of you can only pay attention to so much and you have to pay attention to your own system and anything beyond that to a certain extent is a luxury. And if it's really interesting, like Donald Trump or like Boris Johnson or something, people will tend to pay attention. But if it's boring and it, you know, it's the Good Friday Agreement and Stormont's been restored, well, you know, why are you going to care about that in Cork? Speak, speaking of boring, there's a picture up behind you of you with Arlene Foster. Um, sh um, she's the leader of the DUP, obviously. They're the party you presumably cover the most. Um, any senior political correspondent such as yourself has an interesting relationship, I always think, with the kind of the senior members of the most powerful political party. You've had no shortage of run-ins with all, all kinds of well-known members of the DUP, famously with Ian Paisley Jr. Um, you might want to tell the audience about that one. But what's your relationship like with the DUP now? Or are there different kinds of relationships? There are multiple relationships. Um, I was at the DUP conference recently, just about three weeks ago, and I got a very warm reception from everybody. And uh, lots of people were sidling up to me and saying, I'm really enjoying the book, Sam. I'm really enjoying the book. Um, other people were, were, were asking me about certain parts and saying, are the inquiry going to be picking up on this? Are they going to be asking so-and-so, who's my party colleague, for some um, hard um, question or so asking some hard questions of him? So there, there are camps within the DUP on the front they're all united. They're going into this election. They're all behind Arlene Foster. They're all behind Nigel Dodds. Beneath the surface, there is a, in, in very simple terms, there's a traditionalist camp, the old Paisleyites, the religious um, people, the people who um, have been with the party generally for a long time. And then there are the more pragmatic people, the people who were attracted to the DUP, not by, by that sort of stuff, but they were attracted because this was the party that was on the up. It was the party that was going to be the dominant party in Northern Ireland politics. They wanted to be ministers in Stormont. They wanted to be chairs of Stormont committees. They wanted to do politics. And so they were attracted to the party for that reason. And there is this fissure, therefore, in the party between those two camps. Have they been corrupted by power? Does this scandal tell that? Tell us I that think some, some of them have certainly been corrupted by power. Um, there are there are just too many scandals around the DUP. And I think that what, what, one of the central weaknesses for the DUP is that any party has scandals, any party has difficulties, people behave badly, they're human. The test of a party is how they deal with that. And there's a sense that within the DUP, it's acceptable to be involved in these sorts of things and not be punished. Let's take somebody as an example. Andrew Crawford is Arlene Foster's right-hand man for almost all of her ministerial career. He was the person who was um, involved in attempts which ultimately led to this scheme being kept open when it was out of control, costing taxpayers a fortune. He had family members who were getting into the scheme. By my calculation, they were in line to get about £6 million from the scheme. He had all sorts of conflicts of interest, all sorts of questionable um, practices. He resigned as a special advisor. <laughs> ultimately when when this came out and the public 
took that to mean that he was contrite, that the party had punished him, that they told him, you've crossed the line. Actually, what we find out is that he told the civil service a different reason for his resignation. He said, I'm going off to campaign for the DUP. And within the rules at Stormont, that meant that he was eligible for a massive golden handshake of tens of thousands of pounds. Um, and so you've got this situation where even when he's supposedly being punished, he's being rewarded. And then the DUP employ him to handle their Brexit policy, of all things. I mean, I think that that undermines the DUP and that is their doing. Pat, does any of this sound familiar? Our colleague, Fintan O'Toole, talks about impunity as a... Who? Uh, 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 he's, he's Fintan, Fintan O'Toole. He stands in sometimes on the opinion page. Uh, um, he's, he's an up-and-coming young journalist. Um, he talks about the, keep an eye the impunity chap. in Irish politics where people do things which are clearly bad, but there are no real consequences. So the people who come after them reckon they can do the same things or some slight variation thereof without suffering consequences the same. And that sounds... We have definitely seen that down here, but it sounds like there's a bit of that up there too. Well, well, yes, yes and no, and loath though I am to disagree in any way with Finton, but um, I, I, I think, you this, know... This is a first. I, 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 think, I think perhaps that, you know... The, I mean, there are certainly... There are elements of the the extraordinary story that Sam paints in uh, the pages of, of the book that will be familiar to people here who are, uh, you know, uh, who, who have lived through our experience of tribunals and corruption, particularly in the planning area and, uh, and, and, and so forth. Um, but I think that is a process that our... Uh, our, our politics and our political establishment went through maybe two, two and a half decades ago. And as a result, we have a uh, an infrastructure of ethics, laws, norms, conventions, the, uh, the acceptability and expectability of... Uh, transparency in, uh, in in many aspects of how the public sector and the private uh, 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 and the private sector interact. That is, I think, rather ahead of the uh, of of what clearly pertains in in the north. Not just legally, but culturally. Now, a criticism that I I, I have made and Finton has made as well of many of those. Uh, the ethics laws and the standards laws is that they demand only uh, they they allow they appear to uh, to prevent iniquitous behaviour, but in fact all they demand is uh, form filling and box ticking, and that truly nefarious corrupt behaviour can go on underneath that uh, uh, underneath that sort of ethical, legal superstructure. But I do think that the culture, that, that the Stormont culture that Sam describes so well, uh, I, I think to a large extent that has been banished from Southern politics to the extent that if it exists, it is underground and people know that if they are, if it is brought to light, they are. They will be in trouble in a way that didn't seem 
to me to be the case with a lot of the, 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 the RHI stuff. And one of the central differences between this jurisdiction and Northern Ireland is that we didn't have an opposition. So if you screw up down here, you expect that you're going to get out of government. Um, there was the, uh, the uh, Maria Bailey case recently. Um, there is a sense of consequence in Northern Ireland, it's not like that. There were there were about there were one one hundred and eight MLAs. I think about a hundred of those were in the government parties. So there were eight people who weren't in the government. I mean that that gives you a sense of how how little scrutiny that was. That was the way the Good Friday Agreement was constructed. It was there for good reason. They were trying to be inclusive. But there's a very obvious difficulty if you think you're there forever, as the DUP and Sinn Fein thought they were. If you're completely dominant, you've got no real rivals. You've seen them off. Why wouldn't you just, if you're of a certain type of moral character? Just milk the system. Do you uh, think that the sorry, do you, do you think that the, you know, the very contrived political structures are obviously contrived for a very good reason? Do you think that they have outgrown their usefulness now? Yes, in the sense that even before this crisis, we had moved to a system where we had an opposition instalment. First time since 1972 that we'd had an opposition. And actually, even though a lot of people involved in that think that that was a failure because those parties, when they went to the polls in 2017, they didn't do very well. The Ulster Unionists, the SDLP, they, they struggled. The, the Ulster Unionists had a really bad election. The SDLP just held on and no more. There was no great reward for them. And so I think a lot of them are now planning if Stormont does come back, they'll go straight back into the executive. We'll be back to where we were We'll have no opposition. We'll have gone backwards, if you like, while thinking that we're moving forwards. But I think that that, that element of it was accepted as being indefensible. Um, you, you, you have got no way to change your government. You've got no way to, um, to punish those or reward those who have behaved well or, or badly. There's a separate issue with the electorate that the tribal system in Northern Ireland means that if you're a unionist um, or you're a nationalist, overwhelmingly people vote based on that, not based on the policies of the person, not based on their record in government. And so therefore we have somebody like Ian Paisley Jr. who has repeatedly been involved in scandals. He will romp home in North Antrim. There's not any sense that he's under pressure whatsoever. And so therefore, while we can blame politicians for this, ultimately it's the public. The public have the chance to hold these people to account. And far too often, I think, they haven't. So let me ask you something about that, because, sorry, I have he, to. He, have to he do never that do that to Vinton. This happens. I do, I, it's very hard to do it to Vinton, but I do do it sometimes. Um, there's a couple of things going on at the moment, which maybe indicate that that's beginning to change or that those systems which have been set in stone for, for the last while might change. One, of course, is the deal which Boris Johnson has agreed with the EU, and that is contingent upon a vote, a majority vote, so 50% plus one in the Assembly in four years' time or whatever it is as to whether to continue with the, with the, uh, with the border arrangements which, which have been negotiated. So that's not, that doesn't require, you know, mass support on both communities. So that's that. The other one, of course, is the thing that's big, built into the Good Friday Agreement itself, which is the, uh, the potential vote on Irish unity, that doesn't require consent from both communities either. And there is an argument, some people get irritated about this, I saw Owen Harris giving off about it in the, in the Sunday Independent, that the, the anti-majoritarian structures which were put in place to prevent the abuses which had taken place over the history of the Northern State in the Good Friday Agreement, perhaps it's now time to look at them and say, perhaps we don't need them anymore. And one of the reasons is because there actually isn't a majority anymore, because unionists no longer command a majority in the assembly itself and won't in the future. There is definitely going to be reform of those structures. That is one of the key issues in the talks at the moment, insofar as there are any talks at the moment. But whenever the, the DUP and Sinn Féin get talking, that's one of the 
key issues on the table. How do they reform what they call the, the petition of concern? That's the veto mechanism within the Assembly. And there is very good reason for that because um, it's not about getting rid of it or going back to majoritarianism. It's about including the other parties. So Northern Ireland has moved from a situation where it was simply unionists and nationalists. Now you've got unionists, nationalists, and a growing category of others. Greens, Alliance Party, people before profit, people who don't define themselves primarily in the constitutional question. In Stormont's system, those people's votes in a tight vote in anything that matters, they don't count. They literally don't count. And that is indefensible as that sector grows. So I think what we're moving towards is something like qualified majority voting. And that's where you say that rather than having to get 50% of the votes, you have to maybe get 60% of the votes. But that means that you can build a coalition. You can say to the Greens, look, come along and vote with us on this or alliance on this. That's good for politics. It's a bit, it's what happens in councils in Northern Ireland. And that is good. Where I think the DUP have a point is where they oppose Boris Johnston's deal on this issue of majoritarianism. I think that's a very dangerous thing in Northern Northern Ireland. So this, this is something, because of the history of Northern Ireland, it was unionism that was obviously opposed to um, giving up majoritarianism because they were the majority. That, that's quite logical in some ways. They came to accept it a long time ago, and that was formalised in the, in the Good Friday Agreement in 1998, and they've worked that system. This is probably the first major decision where that system would work in their favour. Think about how that looks to a unionist in Cullibaki or in Ballymena. This is the first time that the system that they were told, yes, it works for us as nationalists at this point because we are the minority. At some point, you might be the minority and it will work for you. That's the, it's a principle. It's not a, an expedient thing that we can get rid of when it suits us. At the first point where it happens on a constitutional issue, hmm. they see that being torn up. I think that's very, very, very dangerous. There is a counter-argument to that, and it wouldn't be one I'd make because I'd count myself among the others to find in your, in your three categories there. And I put this actually to Mary Lou MacDonald in a, in a podcast we did a, a few months ago um, because Seamus Mallon, when this discussion started a few months ago, said that 50% plus one in the context of a referendum should it happen on the on, on Irish unity in Northern Ireland was not sufficient, that you, ha you had to win support, at least some support to be defined uh, among, both among both communities. And Mary Lou MacDonald, she didn't quite say this, but you know, I would interpret it as being, fuck no, we've been putting up with this for the last 100 years, and at the minute it changes, you're changing the rules. And on, sorry, I, th I think we're, we're talking slightly across purposes. I'm talking about votes in the assembly, majoritarian okay. votes right. in the assembly. When it comes to a border poll, I, I, I think it is very, very difficult to make the argument that Seamus Mallon made. I think Northern Ireland has been justified as a state because the majority of its inhabitants want it to exist as it is at the moment. Yes, there's the argument that it was that the line was drawn in the map artificially. We get all that. But where we are today, um, that we, we, we can't be responsible for what our grandfathers and great-grandfathers did. But where we are today, the justification, such as it is, is that Northern Ireland is supported by the majority of its inhabitants. If that's no longer the case, I think it is very difficult to argue. Think about it like this. If there is, in the Seamus Mallon situation, a, a border poll in which there is a narrow victory for republicanism, for Irish unity, and that, that isn't enough, how on earth do you sell that to the world and explain that most people in this state don't want it to exist, but we're not allowed to change it? Yes, it would create enormous problems if unionists aren't happy with that. I'm not, it's, it would be a nightmare scenario, but I don't see how you get around it. But actually, I think Seamus Mallon's argument is directed at nationalists, uh, uh, you know, rather than the framers, the constitutional framers of the question, if it, uh, if it does come to be, asked, uh, to be asked. I think what Malin is saying is to the, I think what he's saying is to Dublin 
and to nationalists in the north that we don't want the sort of 50% plus one unity and, uh, and, and what has flowed from that for nationalists in the north for the last 100 years. That's not the sort of unity that we want. And we want to demonstrate if unity is worth anything, it is worth... Uh, it, it is only because it is worth convincing unionists that they have a place in uh, in a new Ireland. And I think Hugh is absolutely right. I think that argument falls on deaf or hostile ears in Sinn Féin. But I think it is one that makes sense to a lot of people in the South. And we were talking earlier about you know the whole possibility of uh, of a North South referendum, so a North South referendum, or a unity referendum, or uh, as as uh, as we were suggesting, possibly four referendums: two North, two two South, one each on the principle, and then on subsequently on the deal. That uh, that may or may not be negotiated, but uh, I, I, you know, I, I, I think that is. I think the, the the sort of arguments that Malin makes are ones that I think could be received more. Uh, uh, I, I think people in the south would be more receptive to than uh, than your response from Mary Lou Macdonald suggested. And Leo, Leo Veradker has also issued a very interesting call, and he, he chose an odd place to do it. It was at the West Belfast Festival in, um, in the summertime. But it was basically, even though it was in Belfast, it seemed very clearly directed to people down here. And it was saying, effectively, don't think that Northern Ireland is going to be bolted onto the Republic and you'll have the classic idea of Irish unity. This will mean effectively, and I, I'm paraphrasing him greatly here, but this, this is essentially what he was saying. This will mean dismantling your state as you know it and creating an entirely new entity, which will be more welcome and potentially to some unionists. I mean, there'll be lots of unionists who will just oppose it regardless of what it is as a point of principle. But in order to get those who are persuadable on board, there will have to be radical changes. And I think that's really significant. Uh, well, at, at, at the very least, for you know, a, a 32-county Ireland to be acceptable to unionists, it would have to be a lot more British than it is now. And what does that mean? I, I presume it means at God the very the least, like things like well, flags and emblems and all those sort of things would have to be uh, 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 would would have to be part of the package. Presumably, the Commonwealth and uh, and that and uh, the, the royal family is in great shape at the moment. I look forward to a closer relationship with them. <laughs> um, uh, but you know, I, I I think actually I think that's a, a discussion that lots of people here would be open to. But I think it is something. <laughs> that was really like the way people laughed at Boris Johnson the other day at the yeah. debate. But anyway. But I think it is something that here, I mean, you know, I've, I've, I've always been of the view that actually the difficulty in getting a unity referendum passed, given that it will only be, it can only take place in the North if there is, uh, if the Secretary of State believes that it has, that it is likely to pass. So if you think that it only takes place in the north when it probably will pass i think that the real question actually might be in the south although i don't think it would pass i don't think uh, sam that if there was a referendum in northern ireland in the next five or six years which is what the people who are pushing for it that's the time frame they want i don't think it would be passed by a majority of the people in northern ireland i think you're right um and i think the i mean if you if you go back three years people people 
people have very short memories sometimes in politics. In politics, if you go back three years, Northern Ireland had never been more constitutionally secure in its entire history. Polls were at record levels of support for the union. Protestants, Catholics, people in the middle. It wasn't that lots of these people were enthusiastic about it. They weren't flag waving, but they were happy. They were content. They thought things were going in the right direction. They were getting a fair crack of the whip. Society had changed. And suddenly we're in a situation where we're talking about Irish unity. That shows how far things have moved. But I think there is a constitutional determinism in republicanism where they think we're inevitably on this trajectory towards unity. That clearly wasn't the case three years ago. At the moment, it looks like we are heading back in that direction. We are, clearly. The polls are tightening. Um, but there's no guarantee. I mean, for instance, let's take Brexit as one of the issues that has precipitated the, the situation we're in at the moment. This is predicated on the idea that Brexit will be a catastrophe. First of all, that it will happen. There's not even a guarantee of that, although it's probably likely now. And once you start going through and ticking off the various things that have to happen, um, it is it is far less likely, I think, than, than as some people think. And one, once you get into the details of it, the NHS, currency, pensions, benefits, once you get into all you, that you'd stuff... You'd frighten the hell out of lots of people. Well either from your side because you might think you have to pay for it or from our side of the border where people might think they have to give this up. Um, whichever it is, it's it's a difficulty. And also people, people, I think, after Brexit are more aware of what it means to take a massive constitutional decision without thinking about it enough. Let's see what happens. I want to get back to the subject of the book. There's a lovely picture behind us of uh, Arlene Foster proudly holding some lovely lovely wood pellets, which, of course, the whole scandal uh, is all around wood pellets. Uh, if I was standing against the DUP, I think I'd be using that picture in my Facebook ads. Uh, you should the, be employed uh, by the Ulster uh, Unionist Party. They're, they're, they're not quite as good <laughs> as that. Are they not? They're not that efficient at that kind of thing. Um, is, is she in jeopardy? What's likely to happen? This this inquiry is drawing to a close. We can When can we expect a result and what might happen out of that? She is under more pressure, I think, electorally than she is from the inquiry at this point. I don't know what the inquiry is going to say, but whatever it says, I think if she has a good election and a bad inquiry, I think she might survive. If she's a bad election and a, and I'm, I'm now mixing myself up, but anyway, if she, <laughs> if she does badly at the polls mm. um, and she does all right in the inquiry, um, I think that, she, that she, she, she is basically more at the mercy of voters than she is at the mercy of the inquiry. The DUP is driven by one thing above all others, and that is votes. Everything they do is through the prism of the ballot box. It's why they're so successful. If she's a vote loser, they will get rid of her. That's one of the many ways in which the DUP, Pat, reminds me sort of of the old Fianna Fáil, except with Bibles. Yeah, I mean, I, well, <laughs> um, I'm sure Fianna Fáil had Bibles as well, but they didn't didn't use them the same way. I, different I, versions. I, but different I versions. think there's um, I think there's certain parallels to, so you say old Fianna Fáil, early stage Fianna Fáil, that sort of the the almost the the sublimation of the you know the nationalist urge into politics and the creation of this incredibly effective political machine organized from the ground up that produces a cadre of, you know, hard-faced, upwardly mobile political operatives. I think there are some similarities there, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not exactly the same, really, in some ways. What do, what do you think, Sam? There's also some similarities in terms of this book and some of the... Um, 
very bad behaviour and the stench as lots of people in Northern Ireland see it and it will be the inquiry to rule on the law of this but in terms of the morality of it um, lots of people see this as corruption um, in a moral sense at least and I'll be very careful to say that for legal reasons because there is a threat from Arlene Foster that if we publish the book in the form it's in um, that she'll be coming after us um, which hasn't happened yet but um, I, I got an email from a very senior very experienced unionist politician um, a, a few days ago and I'm just trying to find the right place now um, but but he, he was making the point, um, comparing unfavourably um, things in Northern Ireland after reading the book with Fianna Foyle. And essentially he was saying that um, Northern Ireland was in a situation now that the South was in a few decades ago. Charlie Hawhey, corruption, a sense that the there was something rotten in the state. And that was what he said. And, it, and, and he said it distressed him. He had worked to build devolution. He had worked to try to make politics work in this very awkward um, cumbersome Good Friday Agreement system. It's not easy to do politics in that system. And he was saying he tried to do that. And when when he looks at this, he was saying, how is this different to, um, to Fianna Foyle at the Galway races? That's what it looks like. And that's a senior veteran unionist. That's not somebody who's uh, a, a middle ground voter floating between unionism and nationalism. I think that gives you a sense of the potential damage that has been done to the constitutional position by this sort of behaviour. And not just this scandal, but this comes on a long line of scandals. I'd suggest there's one perhaps relatively subtle difference, which is that some of the characters who were involved in that stuff about development and backhanders and brown envelopes and large sums of money uh, were screwing the state that they were supposed to be looking after. Um, I think, reading your book, that the DUP thought they were screwing the Brits. And in that sense, they were doing what Sinn Féin wanted to do. I think there is a very large dollop of that in all of this. Um, Sinn Féin and the DUP don't agree on many things. One of the few things they agree on is, let's get as much money out of London as we can. Mm -hmm. um, and this was seen as success. The system is working. It's forcing these extreme parties together. It's making them um, be pragmatic about things, think about the greater good. And there's an element of truth in that. What we see in this is that there was this Ulster nationalism in the DUP. There was obviously Irish nationalism in Sinn Féin. And it, it, it basically united in this sort of economic um, nationalism, attempting to get as much money into Northern Ireland. On one level, that's not a bad thing. Northern Ireland has got lots of problems. There's lots of deprivation. There are infrastructure deficits. There are difficulties as a result of the troubles, although sometimes that's exaggerated um, by politicians when they're trying to make an argument for more money. But what, that, that's not what's happening here because Arlene Foster's advisor had been warned that there was abuse of the scheme. He'd been warned that the budget had been blown. He knew that there was a crisis. He knew that civil servants were desperately trying to get the minister to make a decision to rein it in. He knew all that. And there is evidence here that he sent an email off the system, he tried to hide it, he didn't want us to read it, to another special advisor in the DUP saying, I don't see what the problem is here. All that would happen if the scheme stays open for a while longer is that Northern Ireland would get more than its fair share of the money. That would be to Northern Ireland's advantage, I think. So this is explicitly in his own words. He thinks it's a good thing. It's not a mistake. It's the policy as far as he's concerned. And the question, of course, is if that's what he thought and he was the hand-picked advisor of Arlene Foster. Is that what Arlene Foster thinks? I asked her questions, but she simply responded with a lawyer's letter. Okay. <laughs> um, so the, 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 basically the thinking there is that if a hospital doesn't get built in Stoke because money went to pellet-burning things in, in Ulster, that's fine. But if a hospital doesn't get built um, in Portadown, that's a different matter, isn't it? 
And I think there, there is such short-termism here. You can see that in a, in a very tribal electoral system in Northern Ireland, if you get as much money in as possible on whatever side of the fence you're on, that's going to be popular. It's a populist policy. Strategically for unionism, it's disastrous potentially. If Middle England wakes up and realizes what has been happened here, uh, what, what has been happening here, there is a day of reckoning for unionism that they have been saying the right thing when they go to London. Arlene Foster goes to conservative events. She says, We're all in this together. Our precious union matters to me. I want the best for the entire UK. And then we find out that her advisor thinks it's okay to screw money out of London, even when it's going up in smoke. But it also paints a picture of a sort of an adolescent political culture, an adolescent governing culture, where people view it's just their, it's their job to screw as much money out of the mum and dad of Westminster as they possibly can. And the, the, the odd thing about that is that that's reflected across the divide as well in Sinn Féin, who, you know, play the Westminster system for as much resources as can possibly be got out of it, went to Westminster to get them to legislate on abortion and same-sex marriage. And there is, it seems to me, at the heart of this problem and at the heart of this culture, a sort of a, a refusal to take responsibility for the government of Northern Ireland that is common, that is endemic in the system and common across all the parties. And one of the things that makes that possible is that we don't have tax raising powers. So they're not spending our money. Yes, people in Northern Ireland pay tax, but it goes into a big central pot in London. Um, it gets doled back out and we get a massive subvention of billions of pounds on top of that. So we, we, we aren't paying our way, if you like. And people know that we're not paying our way, so they know that it's not really their money. And so there's not a sense that in this jurisdiction, if the minister was caught doing something like this, people would be furious because they would think, this is my money. In Northern Ireland, there is, I think, a, a sort of moral hazard here where because it's not our money, they're not accountable in the same way. And there has long been a culture in Northern Ireland of abusing benefits, of lots of these things, where in certain, in certain sectors of society, that is seen as completely socially acceptable. Um, so if, if that is happening at a small scale, it's not entirely surprising that when some of these people get into power, it happens on a much larger scale. So is it a kind of fake politics that you have? I mean, obviously, it's not even that existing at the moment since the suspension of the Assembly. But even when it did exist, was it a kind of fake politics? And there, was, there were too many politicians for the amount of people who they're representing. They were incredibly well financed with all these special advisors. Um, there's vast amounts of PR spin people. There's more, I think I'm right in saying there's more PR people in Northern Irish government than there are journalists in Northern are, Ireland. Yeah which is pretty shocking. And that's just Stormont. That's not even when you get into public bodies and health trusts. And that, that's not the entire public sector. That's just yeah. Stormont. Government departments have more press officers than there are journalists in Belfast newsrooms. <laughs> Let's talk about elections, because there are elections coming very soon. Um, the DUP is facing a couple of very tough fights. One very particularly tough fight, I think, in North Belfast is where uh, a lot of the concentration is, but also in South Belfast as well. Uh, there have been some interesting decisions by all the parties in terms of standing or not standing. Um, what, what, what do you make of it all? There's two very interesting elements to this which overlap with what we've just talked about. The DUP is still very, very strong in Northern Ireland. It's got a massive vote. There's no sense that its vote's about to implode. However, where it's really struggling um, is in Greater Belfast. So the metropolitan area, the, the big populous area of Northern Ireland, that's where the Alliance Party, the centrist party, and to a lesser extent Sinn Féin, and actually in, in this election probably the SDLP, are making gains. And the DUP's... Um, 
message which resonates in some traditional rural areas um, and even where it doesn't resonate and people don't agree with them on things like same-sex marriage or abortion or whatever it is, but they still vote for them for tribal reasons. They're the big champion of unionism. Who else is there? The Ulster Unionist Party are in a pretty sorry state. And so therefore, there, there is a there is a, a uh, insulation, if you like, from the reality of what would be the case if they were facing a, a meaner rival. But in Belfast, that's not happening. And so all three of the DUP seats are under pressure in Belfast. There's four constituencies in Belfast, north, south, east and west. The DUP holds three of the four, three quarters of the seats. But it doesn't have anything. It doesn't even have half of the votes in Belfast. So it's punching way above its weight. And um, because and it's not there's no sinister gerrymandering or anything of that nature. It's just the, the, the way in which the uh, first past the post system works is that in somewhere like south Belfast, Emma Little-Pengelly, the DUP candidate, has something like 30 percent of the vote. But she gets elected because all of the the other candidates take lots of votes themselves. In this election, that's not happening. She is facing um, a very strong challenge because other parties have stood aside. Sinn Féin have stood aside. The Green Party have stood aside. And so you've got this. While it's while it's couched in the language of Brexit and leave and remain, and that is, for a lot of people, a very genuine reason why they're doing it, it is, in reality, an anti-DUP pact. And it brings in not just the nationalist parties, which had never happened before, but it brings in the Green Party here outside the tribal debate. And I think that shows something of the difficulty for you Unionism, that they have not just turned off a lot of nationalists, they've actually turned off some of these centrist voters who potentially will decide the future of Northern Ireland in a border poll um, to the point where they're, they're joining forces with Sinn Féin and the SDLP to get rid of the DUP because of their Brexit policy. And so what's your call then at this stage on North and South Belfast? I think so South Belfast is gone, and people in the DUP accept that privately. Um, they are, they're, 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 as they see it, fighting the good fight despite um, the uh, odds stacked against them. In East Belfast, Gavin Robinson is up against the alliance leader, Naomi Long, very charismatic, very um, capable figure, somebody who won one of the three Northern Ireland MEP seats earlier this year. It was a seismic result. You suddenly went from having a situation where, for the entire history of Northern Ireland, while we were in the EU, we had two unionist MEPs and one nationalist. And the the, the Parties moved around, but it was always two unionists, one nationalist. Now we've got a situation of one unionist, one nationalist, and one other. And that, I think, speaks very powerfully to where Northern Ireland politics is shifting. Um, I think she, she's very far back, though, from Gavin Robinson. She would have to make up a lot of ground. In North Belfast, Nigel Dodds, the DP Westminster leader, is on a knife edge. I mean, you, you could toss a coin for that seat, I think. Up and that's the, fair to say, the nastiest and most overtly sectarian battle, isn't it? It is, and, and I think it's fair to say it always has been. That part of Belfast... It was suffered. the last time as well, really, wasn't it? And the time before that. Um, that, that part of Belfast is, is quite unusual. You have got lots of... Lot, West, West Belfast is overwhelmingly Catholic, Republican, nationalist. East Belfast, overwhelmingly um, unionist, Protestant. North Belfast is very unusual. You've got intersections, little community streets. You, you go from one street to another, um, it changes, the curbstones change colour. Um, and for that reason, during the Troubles, it was a very dangerous place to live. Um, and so it's been a very divided part of Belfast, and we're seeing that now. And so while on the surface this is about Brexit, you scratch the surface, or you don't even scratch the surface, you just sort of glance at it. And for a lot of people, it's nothing to do with Brexit. So we saw in the run-up to the to the campaign, you know, there were there were echoes of times past. There were threats from loyalist paramilitaries to the Ulster Unionists saying that they should stand down their candidate, which you know, which they actually did. And there's an issue at the moment about banners which are up around the constituency about about John Finucane, who's the Sinn Fein candidate. Yeah. 
and this is this is something where um, the the DUP is treading a fine line um, between trying to um, distance. So the, these these banners um, bring in. Um, so jo John Finucane is the son of the murdered Belfast solicitor Pat Finucane. Um He has been along with his family campaigning for a public inquiry into that murder, um, and he he has been he is now the Sinn Fein Lord Mayor of Belfast. He's a, He's a, a, a practicing solicitor, very impressive young um, Sinn Féin um, figure. But he, his, so, some of his family um, were member, very prominent members of the IRA. Um, and so therefore, these banners are trying to project onto him, if you like. And um, I don't think there's ever been any suggestion that he had anything to do with the IRA, but they're trying to, pro to project onto him that association. The DUP are, I think, trying to... Um, be seen not to be involved in this. And they've, they've washed their hands of it, said it's nothing to do with us. We don't know about it. We don't support this sort of thing. But also then throwing it back in Sinn Féin and saying, well, do you condemn an attempted murder bid on Nigel Dodds, who is the other candidate, um, when he was taking his six his six son to hospital in the 1990s? And so you're you're back into this politics of the 1990s, um, even though ostensibly this is a radical departure and we've got this you know, um, anti-Brexit coalition and whatever. That is an element of it. Some people will what, vote on that, but not everybody. What do you everybody. say to, to nationalist critics of the, of the DUP, I suppose, who say that the DUP benefited when it was convenient to it from uh, loyalist paramilitarism and, in fact, went very close to it uh, at, at some points over the course of the Troubles, but, but managed to sort of, in the biblical sense, wash its hands of responsibility for the atrocities that were carried out by them? There are certainly people in the DUP who have been far too close to loyalist paramilitaries. William McRae, who was the MP for South Antrim until the last, until two elections back, um, shared, famously, infamously shared a platform with Billy Wright, one of the most notorious and sectarian loyalist killers. Um, after it was known what he was up to, he claimed that that was because he was there to um, protest against um, threats to his life or whatever. But it, 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 was a, it was an image that, that said an awful lot to nationalists in particular, not just to nationalists. And there are people in the DUP who um, have um, in the past been involved with Ulster Resistance, which was a quasi-terrorist group, um, which um, is, is pretty difficult to pin down. But they imported guns, and those guns were used to murder people. Um, and there are questions about what happened to those. And in more recent times, while it's not right to compare the DUP and its relationship to loyalist paramilitarism to Sinn Féin, it did not grow out of it, it doesn't have that um, symbiotic relationship um, and at points loyalist paramilitaries have campaigned against the, against the DUP and have felt that they've been used and abused by the DUP but there are far too many stories of UDA people in particular in parts of Belfast campaigning for the DUP, putting up posters um, the sense that Certain things happened. There was another scandal in Northern Ireland with the Social Investment Fund, um, £80 million of funding supposedly to help deprived communities. Actually, um, BBC Spotlight and some other um, uh, probes into this discovered that lots of this money was going to groups that were very heavily tied, let's say, to paramilitaries on both sides of the divide. Yeah, let's put it that way, yeah. Um there's a party which most of the people in this room, including me, do have the opportunity to vote for, and I'm sure some of you do, and that's, we've barely referred to them, though, and that's Sinn Féin. They're nearly as big as the DUP. They feature quite significantly in your book. Um, it would be easy to kind of come to the, easy con to the conclusion that there's a mirror image, that, that they're the same, except just on the, on the other side of the divide. I think that's oversimplifying it. But there is no doubt, reading the book, that they have this symbiotic kind of a relationship and in a way defend on each other, depend on each other, even though they claim to be at daggers drawn all the time. Sinn Féin are nowhere near as responsible as the DUP for RHI. Make no mistake about that. And some people in the DUP try to claim that. It's nonsense. They're not. 
However, they're responsible for the culture that enabled RHI. They knew this was going on. They knew minutes weren't deliberately weren't being taken in meetings. They knew that there was secrecy. They knew that they were keeping things off the grid. They knew that deals were being done with DUP special advisors in corridors. This was this was the way they operated. They wanted to. These these are two very centralized parties, two very secretive parties. It's quite natural that when they go into government, they carry those practices into government. They've worked for them electorally. Why would you forsake them and suddenly be open and transparent? That's not how they operate. What we see in this, though, is that because of the powers of the public inquiry, which compelled some of this documentation on private phones, WhatsApps, texts, mobile phones that were never meant to be discovered, they have revealed a hidden hand, if you like, in Sinn Féin in particular. They show that the, the very powerful, as we thought, Sinn Féin finance minister, basically the second most powerful person in the executive after the first and deputy first ministers, controlling the budget, controlling the purse strings, he's actually, it seems, in this, um, not quite a placeman, perhaps, but he, he, he's not quite a placeman, perhaps, but he's somebody who, when it comes to a massive decision about this scheme, how to rein it in, how to cut the cost to taxpayers, he goes to this group of unknown, unseen, um, unaccountable senior Republicans who either um, were in the IRA, one of them was a leader of the IRA in the Mays prison, one of them was a go-between for the IRA at one point. These are people who have no public accountability, no democratic mandate, and he's asking them, are you content if I take this decision? Now, they're not experts in a complex energy scheme. They're not lawyers. They're not legal draftsmen. And he's asking these people, why would he be going to them? And I think there was an allegation in 2015 by the government, by the police service in Northern Ireland, that people within Sinn Féin believe that the IRA Army Council still exists in a different form, not in a form to direct terrorism, but in a form for political purposes, and that it directs Sinn Féin. Lots of people said that was nonsense. Sinn Féin said that was nonsense. I think this story doesn't prove that that is what is happening, but it adds the question as to is that potentially part of what's happening. And finally, if you don't stop me, what happens if they get into government in Dublin? I think that's a really interesting element of this. It's unlikely at the moment, I know that, but will the people who are the ministers actually be the people who are taking the decisions? I feel and, the need to this, seek the view of the political editor of the Irish Times this, on that. Uh, this, in, 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 in many respects, is one of the most, for us, delicious nuggets that comes out of that. This tiny glimmer of light onto the internal world of Sinn Féin and how it does its business. Because, you know, one of the most difficult things to do as a political correspondent in this jurisdiction, I'm, I'm sure it's probably the same in the North, is to see into the inner workings of Sinn Féin. With the other parties, it's less of a problem. They tend to tell you what's going on inside the party. With Sinn Féin, it doesn't. And the great accusation always levelled at, uh, at, at Sinn Féin, particularly since the accession to the leadership of Mary Lou MacDonald, is that, you know, show us who the real leaders were. There was no doubt that Gerry Adams was the leader of Sinn Féin, but the question is perennially asked, is Mary Lou the real leader? Are there the shadowy men in Belfast behind her? Uh, across whom she has to run major decisions for their approval. And in the inquiry, we see that the Sinn Féin administration or ministers in the Sinn Féin administration have to do or choose to do precisely that. They seek the approval. And that is something that has never really been satisfactorily uh, explained by the party. Now, Sinn Féin, 
themselves say, you know, we have a collective leadership, we have vigorous debates within the party. And I think that's actually true. But they don't get to be a, you know, to, uh, to be considered a normal, proper democratic party until there is more visibility and, on how they make their internal decisions. And there is a, a very recent event which many think, you know, illustrates that, which is the very strange um, contest for the deputy leadership of the party, which happened at the Ardesh only last week, uh, where John O'Dowd announced that he was standing against Michelle O'Neill, but then said nothing or wasn't allowed to say anything. Who knows? There were no hustings. There was no overt competition. He was seeking to replace somebody who had been elected without an election or who had been appointed without an election. The leader of the party was appointed without an election to replace somebody who had been the leader of the party for an extraordinary 30 years or more. So these are valid questions, aren't they? I think they're perfectly fair questions. I was at the Ardesh in Derry last weekend, and the way the result of the deputy leadership election was announced was, I mean, it was gas. We were all in the press room waiting to go in to, uh, for the evening session, for the major speeches, and almost in verbal parenthesis, the chair said, and the result of the deputy leadership election is, uh, Michelle O'Neill has been re-elected. And that was it. No votes were given. We asked them for the numbers of the votes. Now, interestingly, after much comment about this, uh, they today they released the numbers of the election, which I think was about 450 to 220 or so. 67% yeah, to 33%. 67% or so, uh, which is interesting. But of course, this is all done behind closed doors, and there's, there's no... You know, there's no transparency on it. There's no visibility on it. And, you know, I, th I, I think that Sinn Féin very clearly are a party in transition from a particular type of organisation towards a more conventional destination or the destination as a more conventional political party. But I think these sort of, these sort of revelations from the inquiry, the practice of the deputy leader election shows us that they're not there yet. What do you think of the O'Dowd thing and what do you think of the numbers that were released today, Sam? I think this is potentially a seminal moment for Sinn Féin, at least in Northern Ireland. Um, I, I've been... Uh, the, the people who were coming to me from within Sinn Féin and leaking details of this and um, what the Art Collier was saying should happen, we're not happy about this, he's not being allowed to campaign, he's not being allowed to make a speech at the Ardesh. That doesn't happen. The newsletter is a unionist paper. It's not where you would expect Sinn Féin to be coming um, if you're disaffected. It's about fourth, fifth, sixth or seventh on the list. Um, that gives a sense of how unhappy people were. And the fact that they had to release this is not, I think, because of media pressure. Sinn Féin, media pressure um, to, to them, it's water off a duck's back. It's internal pressure. There are people there, there are 33% of people who voted against the person who all of the party hierarchy basically backed that is hugely significant. There is a sense in republicanism in Northern Ireland that Michelle O'Neill is not up to the job, that if Stormont comes back and she's deputy first minister, they're in for a disaster and they need somebody more competent and somebody who can speak better, not just to unionists, but also to their own community. But there's there also, the party is in difficulties in the South. The transition has been very difficult for them. And I, I, I always had a suspicion uh, that the collapse of the executive was not just due to the revelations about uh, about RHI, the, the question of the Irish language and abortion rights and same-sex marriage was only invented subsequently as a justification for it. I had a suspicion that Sinn Féin preferred to do that 
very difficult generational transition from Martin McGuinness to Michelle O'Neill in the South, from Gerry Adams to Michelle, uh, to Michelle or to, to Mary Lou MacDonald, while in opposition in the North, while the organisation didn't have to deal with the daily business of government, to do that transition while the executive and the assembly was in abeyance seemed to me to be possibly part of the explanation for the suspension in the first place. Thanks to Sam, thanks to Pat, thanks also to our unsung hero Declan who puts all these things together all the time and thanks for you for coming. And that's it for today's podcast. Thanks to Sam and Pat for braving what was a very rainy night to make it into the Workman's Club. And just to remind you that Sam's book Burned is published by Merion Press. Uh, thanks to the Dublin Podcast Festival and to Alan Bennett of Headstuff for facilitating that live show and I do hope you enjoyed it. Thanks also to our producers Declan Conlon and Suzanne Brennan and remember that you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and Acast or whatever your preferred podcast provider might be. You can also find us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts and you can mail me at ichlinahan at irishtimes.com or you can find me on Twitter. Until the next time, thanks for listening. You know, consulting firms are like onions. Layer after layer after layer after layer. You just don't get the answer or the person you need. You just get irritation. Ugh. Ready for an approach with less bureaucracy? Welcome to Grant Thornton Audit Tax and Advisory. It's not status quo, it's status go. 